You're all welcome to Stories in AI. How are you today? Thanks, Ganesh. I'm great. Thanks for having me. No, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time to be here and sharing your wisdom, expertise, and perspectives on how on this not so hot topic today in the world, right? AI. <laughs> I've never heard of it before. <laughs> yes, yes. I'm, I'm, I'm having a hard time trying to, you know, stay awake when people talk to me about AI these days. No, just kidding here. So, uh, Yoav, why don't you kick us off with your story? What's your background? How did you come to where you are right now? And uh, just walk us through your story. Sure. I actually have a social sciences and humanities background. So I had the socio part of the socio-technical piece of the equation to do this work. I majored in religious studies and political science as an undergraduate and then spent 15 plus years in the nonprofit space doing nonprofit community development, program management. I was the executive director of two startup nonprofits, but always kind of holding very close, you know, mission-driven work and centering human beings in the work I was doing. In about 2016, 2017, I don't know if you recall, we kind of ran headfirst into the brick wall of the end of techno-optimism or Web 1.0, Web 2.0 with the U.S. American election. Uh, and yep. I thought to myself about where I could most contribute to that sort of mission-driven and values-aligned work. And it seemed like the responsibility of technology to society seemed like the right locus for that conversation. So I made a hard pivot at that point into thinking about responsible innovation and first started doing some investment for Pierre Omidyar at Omidyar Network in responsible innovation and tech and society solutions, building networks and thought leadership in that space. And then a little bit more than four years ago, I moved over to Salesforce to focus really on doing that work of responsible innovation with a focus on ethical AI and responsible AI in particular within the context of the enterprise. So I've been at that now for just about four years, like I said. That's awesome. Yeah, this is uh, amazing. And, and in your current role at Salesforce, and I have a lot of, you know, I want to dive deep into a few different uh, parts of your background, including religious studies and how relevant it is to today's times and stuff like that. And I, you know, and I also want to get into techno optimism since you brought that up. Uh, but before that, like, what do you do at Salesforce today? What does your day look like? And give us a view of uh, what you get involved in. At Salesforce, my responsibility is pretty broad. I'm actually, my title is architect of responsible AI and tech, which means that like, uh, design architects or engineering architects, I have broad remit across different product areas to stitch together solutions that embed our responsible AI practices into the product development lifecycle. Our Office of Ethical and Humane Use of Technology, in which I sit, actually resides in our tech and product organization. So we're a product and engineering facing function, which means we're not compliance, not governance, not legal, but rather really embedded in the work of building our products in the first place. So today I'm focusing on things like globalization and localization of generative AI. How do we do this responsibly in languages beyond English when so many of these systems are really built fundamentally to handle English as their primary use case? I'm thinking about things along the lines of trust, so how we monitor and detect 
toxicity, bias, other types of harm. And I'm leading our red teaming and testing operations. So all of the things that catch edge cases for these products and really poke and product them to see where they might be vulnerable to hacking or prompt injection, to toxic inputs, uh, all sorts of vulnerabilities and that red teaming and testing operation and scaling it up as well. So kind of a bunch of different things these days. You're a busy man, so definitely that's uh, that's exciting. So start from the beginning on you know how is how does uh, Salesforce, the CRM company for the world, right? I mean, your power, you're in pretty strong position of influence. So first question: How is Salesforce thinking about AI, and you know across this product portfolio, um, and what are some specific uh, things that they're doing to ensure that it's actually done in a trustful, ethical manner as well? Yeah, it's actually really interesting that you asked that question because our new approach to all of this is AI plus data plus CRM plus trust. Those are the four pillars of what Salesforce is focused on today, right? So uh, we know that AI is going to fundamentally shift and change the enterprise, how work gets done, how uh, our customers, which are you know large companies and enterprises, interact and engage with their own customers, consumers, and users. So AI is driving efficiency, automation, and powering the enterprise. But in order for that AI to be successful, you need to have data. And Salesforce happens to have 23 years of customer engagement and building data into their instances that now can really serve as the rich basis and grounding for those AI systems in a way that couldn't even have been really conceived of a year or two ago. Add to that the CRM context, right, of that data and layer in the trust aspects of the kind of work that I was describing. And we really think that we have a very interesting approach to providing AI to our customers in a way that differentiates us particularly when leaning on trust, you know, things like our ability to do zero data retention, which means that as information from our customers passes through to foundation models that are providing inputs and outputs for them, that those models are not retaining any of that data, not using it for retraining, for fine tuning, or even looked at by a human being. And, and that puts us in a place of trust to really secure the privacy and the data of our customers so that they can deliver helpful, accurate results uh, without worrying about compromising what is fundamental to their business operations, which are those data. Yeah. That is awesome. No, that is awesome. I want to, I want to double click on the zero data retention part that you talked about, but you know, I love the, I love the framing, which is like, look, you think about it as AI plus data, very relevant, and plus CRM, which is the context that you operate in, and then trust and enabling that as a fabric. So, you know, does this mean that almost, you know, I know Salesforce has the Einstein, which is the your AI capability, right? How is that weaved into your Salesforce fabric? Is it in part of every application? Is it just an helpful agent that actually sits in all of the applications? How are you thinking about it? So if we rewind a few years, Salesforce's Einstein journey really began in about 2014 with embedding AI functionality for 
old timey AI, discriminative AI, predictive AI, um, yep. in just about every one of our clouds, right? Clouds are our business units, sales, service, marketing, commerce, et cetera. And we had features ranging from chatbots to voice recognition systems for transcription to predictions for top leads and accounts management and all sorts of, you know, sort of core AI functionality. Uh, with the pivot to generative over the last year, every product is now effectively an AI product, right? With the embedding of generative AI capabilities in everything we're offering and soon to be launched by Salesforce, what we're calling Einstein Copilot, which will be an all-purpose, you know, uh, ride-along assistant to your engagement in the Einstein platform. So being able to engage in natural language with the system. So rather than having to, what one might've had to do in the past, which is go and do 12 clicks to update an opportunity record, now to be able to type in, you know, update that opportunity to $100,000, whatever it is, and have the co-pilot go and perform that function on your behalf will really speed up that work. And we imagine that co-pilot really inhabiting just about every Salesforce product and eventually unifying all of those products as well, right? So that if I happen to be in my service cloud, but I know that I now need to create a marketing email to this person who I've just had a service engagement with, the ability for the co-pilot to take that action as well, even bridging functions between what have traditionally been more siloed products within the Salesforce universe. Interesting. So, so on a, I understand from a user experience standpoint, how you're thinking about it from a, a being a helpful assistant that's weaved in and stuff like that. Now, my question is like, you know, take a step back <clears throat> just on what we are seeing in the market today with ever since chat GPD came about, are we trying to, is, is it, is it one of the two? One is we see a great opportunity to improve the way people work, communicate, you know, uh, um, and, and do more with their time, uh, mainly time and outcomes, if you will. Um, so we're just, and generative AI just became a great tool to go do that, right? And then you're enabling that as a thing. Option two is there is a, you know, a lot of noise on the market. There's a lot of FOMO across everywhere happening, including the large technology vendors. Is it just another, you know, um, value accrual play to actually just, you know, are people really going to benefit from it? And then I'm not just specifically asking about Salesforce, but are we pushing, are we whitewashing generative AI across the landscape? I want to say no. I want to say that I believe this version of AI is a fundamental shift in the way we do work, in the way we learn, in the way we engage with the world. And I wouldn't have said that about a lot of different technologies in the past. You know, if you think about a word processing software, that helped, right? It made writing a book a little bit easier than with a typewriter, but it didn't fundamentally change the work of writing a book right? You still sat down, you still typed words, whether that was into a typewriter or with the ability to cut and paste text from one section to another, it, it was still the same basic function, right? Uh, AI has 
more radically changing the very nature of that work itself, right? We go back to that example of writing a book. Now, the ability to generate an outline, fix the blank page problem. If I don't know where to start, what's the idea in my head and what can the AI spit out to get me started? Uh, I think it's a total game changer. And I don't even think we've started to see the impacts or the potential. Of course, there are risks that I spend my days and nights thinking about, but at the core, I'm really uh, bullish on the potential for AI to shift our work, our knowledge, our society, our educational systems in really mind-blowing ways. No, I, I, you know, and I was, I was, the question was not, I'm, I'm a huge techno optimist and I do see the same point of view that you're seeing it, right? For sure. This fundamentally changes things because the way you interact with content, the way you interact with creativity has changed, right? It kind of provides you a step function, everybody. And then the fact that it's now accessible to everybody and it's not just the echelons of a few folks and access may come in the form of being able to talk to things in natural language rather than having to learn how to code in Python, right? Being able to uh, not having to boot up and set up an entire infrastructure to run models that has to be inferenced to actually get output, but you have this as an API. So there's a lot of that thing that really comes in. But I think, you know, are we the one, there's a huge argument right now going on, like folks like Jan Likon of uh, Meta and, you know, um, it, there's, there's a whole group of folks I think there's like three broad buckets of you know thought leaders in the industry right now. There's like uber super optimists who are saying, you know what, this is just a passing phase, all the challenges that you face, but we have a fundamentally different piece of technology here. We should just go as fast as we can. And then we should drive more open innovation, go push forward and so forth. And then there's another cam that says, this is actually very powerful, but also very dangerous. So you should you know put them inside a... Uh, inside a box and make sure that only a few people have access to it. We're going to start, you know, profiling the society who should get access to it versus not, right? That's the the, the, thir the second part. The third uh, uh, part of the market, what I hear is somewhere in the middle where they're saying, look, I mean, yes, this is actually interesting and needed, but it's open source all the way. We should go open source and that's the way to go do it, right? Now, uh, from your vantage point, just where you're looking at it, you know, even though this is so powerful, I mean, these are fundamental, um, you know, uh, decisions we're making for the society, right? And when you have something as powerful where you can just ask a question and it writes an entire epic in your name, you know, or, or, or whatever you want to, the potential for creating the, the it, it lowers the barrier to actually being able to create good looking, good sounding content, right? You don't have to be super creative so that there is that part of the equation. There is the weaponizing of this mass information distribution system called the internet to actually do things that you don't want to do. And then there is the whole slew of unintended consequences, right? Which we haven't even talked about, right? We're, are we, you know, and then and on, yeah, I'll parlay this and I'll frame it into a question, right? The, the, the other part of this, if you really look at generative AI and I, you know, I have this, Two by two matrix that I use all the time with when I talk to customers and you know C-suite executives saying, look, on the bottom you have prototype to production, on the on the left, on the uh, y-axis, you have uh, you know 
out-of-the-box generic use cases to bespoke use cases, 90% of what enterprises need is in the top right, right? And that is not ChatGPT. ChatGPT Chad is bottom left, right? But that doesn't mean I'm, you're not, that's only to prove the point that that's not alone going to solve all your problems, a generative pre-trained transformer model. You need to have a mix, you know, the right tool for the right problem and so forth. But I'm pulling this whole thing back in and asking you the question around, are we being responsible enough in the way we're pushing this powerful technology forward as an industry? Yeah. And, and to your point about the two by two, uh, I like to say AI is not magic. <laughs> you, you, don't, you don't just sprinkle AI on problems and imagine that that just solves all of them. Um, there are actually problems that can be solved by and be, are better solved by people. So AI, does, it's, so as much as I am a techno optimist to some degree, I am not a techno solutionist. I, I do not believe that AI solves every problem. Um, are we going too far? Are we moving too fast? I think that this is the first time I have seen ethics, responsibility, governance, and risk accompany the introduction of the technology. Hmm. Now, in the public domain and in the public conversation, there is broad awareness along a spectrum, granted, from, you know, the existential risks to humanity and we're all going to turn into paper clips to the, these aren't really huge risks and they can probably be contended with. But along that spectrum of risk assessments, I think there are, there is broad recognition that there is risk. This is not without that kind of risk. And I'm heartened by the fact that that is part of the conversation. Uh, that we are not talking about these technologies like we did with social media as net good and all good and without reckoning with the potential downside consequences. So I want to say, I guess, that I think we're moving quickly and a lot of folks are working really hard to make sure that as we move quickly, we're doing so responsibly as part of the work. So whether it's open AI or stability diffusion or uh, mid journey or pick your foundation model provider, they all have really robust trust and safety teams that have been working from day one to make sure that they're aligned, right? You think about Anthropic and all the work they've discussed publicly as well are, are doing behind the scenes on constitutional AI as a fundamental piece of the work they're doing. I think that this is really engaging the community in thinking about those issues from the outset. So I'm hoping that we're not trending toward that existential risk end of the spectrum, but rather somewhere in between where we're able to address, address the present day risks of the introduction of these technologies and plan for the long-term risks as we go along. So, I mean, that's very well said, and I totally agree with you. In fact, you know, when you when you started off with techno-optimism, yes, we know that this is going to be, there's a few things, and I don't know whether you read the Mark Andreessen manifesto that he just recently launched on techno-optimism. It was a little too We're, we're the enemy. Apparently, yeah. we're the enemy, so. <laughs> so, but but I think, you know, I, I, I like the fact that, you know, you, you said this, you know, around, look, there is 
the dialogue and the engagement from a broader interested parties from all walks of life is there and it's never been so much for any piece of technology before, right? I mean, I, I doubt if there's any other technology that really had this level of engagement and debate and discussion. Also, it might be a, a, a byproduct of the evolution, the information, you know, ecosystem, the economy that we live in and the, you know, the internet and everything, right? But truly enough, I think this is, this is the best you, we can get, right? In terms of having that dialogue, have really having this both sides of the spectrum really strongly, uh, you know, arguing for their case, because the reality is the truth is somewhere in the middle. I mean, almost all the time, right? right. Um, so with that said, you mentioned, you, you said real time, near-term risks versus long-term risks, right? Let's ignore the long-term risks for now. Like, you know, super, you know, super intelligence, like Nick Bostrom talks about and all of that, we'll leave it for another 100, 200 years from now, right? Maybe, yeah. um, maybe sooner, I don't know. Uh, but let's talk about the near-term risks, right? When you start thinking about this from just the places that Salesforce touches as a company, with its products and its customers and its, your your personnel, with use of AI in those things, what risks do you see? And I'm talking generally, like what risks you see, and then obviously tell us about how what is the framework you use to mitigate. And you know, you touched upon a little bit on zero data retention. Go ahead. I think we know what the risks in that sort of near to medium term are. Inaccuracy. Some people like to call it hallucination. I don't prefer that term. I actually prefer the term confabulation because it's not, the system hasn't hallucinated something. That's an anthropomorphization, right? It's just gotten it wrong, confidently wrong in some cases, but it's wrong. So accuracy and particularly in the enterprise and for our customers, that matters a lot because getting it wrong means negative business outcomes, loss of revenue, loss of trust. I mean, there are real um, harms that can come from inaccuracy in the enterprise. Secondly, uh, bias and toxicity. If you train a model on the internet, turns out there are some pretty dark corners of the internet and it learns all of that as part of its generation and part of its predictions as part of its outputs. So bias is an inherent piece of what these systems will output. And we have to figure out how to deal with that. In a previous regime of more predictive or discriminative AI, people had started to make strides toward figuring out how to deliver more AI fairness. But again, that's a determinative system that could be easily tested in a probabilistic yeah. system, it's a lot harder to think about how to test for and mitigate bias. Yeah, it is the, lastly, if, if I may add yeah. on the bias thing, right? You know, it's a, it's a wild west out there. And, you know, I, I actually look for this to see whether there was any study done on the volume of content as a percentage of population or ethnicity or type, right? That's in the internet, right? So if you look at it, most blogs were originated out of, uh, historically, it's definitely going to be like, United States probably has 60% of all the volume of content that's in the United States, in the in the internet. And then now the fast growth is probably going to come from China, India, some of the English-speaking countries as well. There is a language issue in terms of like, you know, most content is in English and that's a problem, right? And I think, you know, if you want to localize and uh, the models and stuff were uh, different things. So bias and toxicity. And then of course, the dark corners, the folks, the part that you and I, probably don't visit, but there's a lot of others too, the conspiracy theories, the 
the, the tweets from our past presidents and, you know, all of that kind of stuff can be used to conjure up embeddings to help with that inaccuracies or confabulations or just even being able to query those, right? And, and so, those biases um, are, are even, you know, it's, again, sort of easy to think about how, and I say easy using very large air quotes, um, to think about how to address some of that in text. But if you think about image models, you know, text to image and the bias in image models, that is so hard you know, it is just such a hard problem to solve because we have to even establish what dimensions of representation or fairness or diversity we care about in those generations in order to assess whether or not we think they are relatively free of bias. They will never be free of bias entirely. But I don't know if I generated, you know, if I submitted a prompt like future president of the United States to an image model. And the model was set up to generate five images as a result of that prompt. And it gave me four black men and one white woman as future president of the United States. Would we say that was good? Would we say that was bad? Would we say that was fair and diverse, right? In a set of five, pretty hard to say. And again, with that probabilistic, system, how many times would we go to that model with that same prompt generating five images before we would say this is either horribly biased and needs to be fixed or not biased so we can, you know, sort of put it aside on a single prompt, right? And so when you think about that with the infinite variability of a system like that, it becomes a really hard problem to tackle. And like I said, we started in the responsible AI community to make strides at that with tests for fairness uh, in deterministic AI, but we have frankly no idea how to do this with a generative system. Okay. Okay. Go around the. Uh, go. You were. You were talking oh, about. Oh, sorry. The right. Resume. Let's go back oh, to the risks. Um, <laughs> third bucket of risk, I would say, you know, is around privacy, security, data provenance, etc. Masking PII, ensuring that it's not leaking, uh, ensuring that data are secure, that they're consented to the use. We're seeing, you know, increasing numbers of suits by publishers, artists, authors, et cetera, against these foundation model providers for the use and infringement of their intellectual property. It's a big unsettled area, but it's clearly an area of risk. And then, you know, societal disruption <laughs> belongs on the list as well. Right. If we're going to really talk about risks, job loss, uh, educational shifts, really fundamental reorganization of some of the societal institutions that we've come to know and rely on is definitely a risk that we need to contend with in the near and medium term as well. So we've at Salesforce, at least, established a set of commitments and principles to address some of those risks that we feel should guide the development of responsible generative AI. The first is accuracy. So how do we deliver on the commitment of accuracy? Develop ways to deliver accuracy scores or confidence measures, deliver 
citation. So if we're delivering a summary of three articles, give the citations for those three articles to allow the user to go through and verify the veracity and accuracy of those results. Make sure that what we're doing is not hallucinatory and is actually grounded in something real. Secondly, safety. So, uh, you know, if we're talking about that bias and toxicity, we have to be able to detect it, we have to be able to filter it, and we have to be able to action on it, right? So giving customers and others the power to customize how they want uh, their systems to function, to enable or dis-enable different types of toxicity, um, different types of bias, you know, uh, just as an example, you know, if the name of your company is like, I don't know, I'm going to make something up here, untoward, like Bastard Dog Co. Uh, you probably want the word bastard to be able to go through your system without getting automatically flagged and, and filtered out, right? Because yep. it's the name of your business. So we need to have some level of customization for these approaches as well. Um, honesty. So enabling people to know when they're interacting with AI generated content, whether that's watermarking, whether that's identifying bots and chatbots as AI, so as not to confuse humans um, into believing they're interacting with AI, establishing and giving credit and credibility to the sources of the data. So honesty is the third principle. Third, empowerment. So making sure we're augmenting human capabilities and work rather than replacing it. Again, if we're thinking about job displacement and societal disruption, we really want to make sure that we have centered in that conversation. How are we supercharging the humans in this equation? And then lastly, sustainability. We know that the development and training of these large models has a negative societal and environmental impact. And we will really want to be focusing on right-sizing models, smaller models chained together that are task specific so that rather than training huge corpuses of data and large models with their car associated carbon emissions that we're really thinking about smaller models. So all of those are the five principles that we sort of have in place today, at least to drive toward more equitable, sustainable and inclusive outcomes. Sounds good. No, I think, you know, like is, if you have a public facing blog on this, please share that and I'll put it in the show notes um, as well, because it's very, you know, first off, it's pretty amazing, pretty laudable that, you know, Salesforce thinking through this. And I've always known Salesforce to be that you know, the thought leader and actually trying to think through because you sit in a position of influence and there's a lot of customers who are on your platform. They trust what you provide and do. And it's great. To, I mean, this is, well, you know, one of the arguments in regulation on AI, we're not going to go there, but, you know, is around like, is self-regulation better than being regulated by people who don't understand the technology? And so it's, it's a lot, there's a lot of that uh, thing that comes in, but definitely, you know, in the list of ethical, responsible companies who are actually thinking about doing this at scale, I mean, definitely Salesforce tops the list. Um, so that's awesome. So, you know, how one question I have is around reach and this customer, since you are in this position of power, I always feel that we're still way early in this market. There is a lot of education. There's a lot of enablement. There's a lot of, you know, it's not just the AI, it's also the user, right? How do you educate them? How do you give them, like you said, I love the, those things around like honesty where, you know, watermarking, identifying and things like that. But this is a, foundational, fundamental piece of technology that's going to change everything that we ever know about. 
right? Anything that we do, the way we work, the way we talk, the way we correspond, everything. And at the, if you really squint and look, you probably have a, I don't know, 10,000, 20,000 people around the world really thinking about this deeply. Mm. I mean, that's a, a huge exaggeration, right? The rest of the 8 billion people in the world are going to be the recipients of the other end of it. How do you, I mean, what is Salesforce specifically doing to educate them, to get them engaged, to make sure that they have the right tools and, you know, beyond just the product interaction, if you will, right? I'm, I'm, and I, I mean, it might just be a, you know, I'm, I'm not specifically asking about Salesforce per se, but, you know, what are we doing as an industry to go drive more education and, and, and engagement from the broader population? Salesforce benefits from being a B2B platform in that educating our direct users is a much more attainable goal, uh, right? We have account executives, customer success executives, um, enablers, solutions engineers, huge teams of people dedicated to educating our customers on how to use and deploy these systems responsibly. But to your point, that's clearly not enough. There needs to be a huge push societally toward technical, technological literacy in a new way that we have not yet, frankly, I think, figured out as a society how to do even with old technology, let alone with this newfangled technology. Um, you know, at Salesforce, we have free learning platforms. We have a, a platform called Trailhead where people can go and learn about all of our technology, as well as generative AI, as well as responsible AI, plenty of content and material up there. And we do, to your point, try to be a thought leader in the space to really try to communicate more broadly our approach to this, which we then share with our counterparts in the industry, with regulators and journalists and all sorts of people who have influence in civil society and elsewhere to guide these conversations and to participate in them broadly. And we need to think about how we teach people what it means to interact with AI and embed it and ingrain it in their lives. Because we're heading inexorably in that direction, we cannot fight this tide. The educators sitting in classrooms who think that they're going to use uh, AI detection tool to figure out who in their classroom is cheating using generative AI are already way behind the eight ball. Um, they need to be figuring out how to teach with AI and alongside AI, not to fight it. And so I think we, we generally need to be educating people about new approaches to doing that, new expectations for doing that, that, you know, if I turn in a report on Monday morning that I used AI to help me with, that's probably a good thing we, we should be heading in that direction, right? We should not assume that people are not using AI. We should do the opposite. We should assume people are using AI and hold them to account for better results as right in turn. Yeah. Um, and, and that's the direction I think we need to be educating people about. No, it's fascinating. I have, um, um, I'm speaking at the Dean's council at the McComb school at UT next week, uh, exactly on this topic. And, you know, I'm an alumni there and I'm like, I, there's all this, and they're actually, I mean, kudos to the University of Texas system. They're actually getting industry folks to come in and talk about like how, what is, how should we think about it, right? 
rather than some of the other schools which is down say like you cannot use chat gpt for my any of the work you do right and uh, there's a i mean i think you know we live in fascinating times right this is a sh- so early in this market and everything as we know that we do every day is going to change and evolve and it's just this you know um if anything the answer is not to stop progress not to stop the evolution right but being part of it engage with it and then you know shape the evolution if you will and to of, do it responsibly part. and to do it thoughtfully do it. and carefully you know you may That's remember true. in the early days of wikipedia it was kind of a wild west right and teachers and educators had pretty bright lines around their students use of wikipedia because it was kind of a mess and they didn't trust it right but over time wikipedia became a more and more trusted vetted and responsible party in the information yeah. ecosystem and today yeah. there are few if any teachers or educators i'm aware of who say you may not cite wikipedia as part of your basic fundamental research that you've done on this topic and i think we're heading there with ai too right we're it's it's a little messy right now we got to sort out a bunch of these risks and figure out how to really approach them and solve to the extent we can for them and as we do it will become more trusted and therefore a more recognized part of the work that we do in all aspects of life whether that's in our professional lives and our personal lives in the education system wherever it may find it itself um but i think we just need to move toward trust so that we really believe that the system is delivering on its promise such that we can use it for its benefit that's awesome trust is the operative word you up this was fascinating what's one piece of advice you have for all the innovators out there playing with ai building ai deploying ai in production uh what's one piece of advice think think like a red teamer think like a black hat hacker i think that an adversarial mindset actually positions us for success in terms of building for trust if we assume that techno optimist stance in all of our work we will be blind to the downsides and that's what happened with social media we just assumed that the technology was benevolent and good and therefore because it was intended to serve a good that it was inherently good right and ai is intended to serve a good but that doesn't mean that it is inherently good and we need to really interrogate that assumption from an adversarial mindset every time we're building every time we're using and really think and interrogate about the results that we have gotten and whether we think those are verified accurate safe honest all of those principles and then go and attack it to fix those problems because i think we have the potential to do it but it requires all hands on deck uh applying all of our creative and mental energies towards solving for those issues yeah fascinating think like a red teamer i love it and you know i always like to say like end of the day ai is a tool it doesn't will itself to do anything good or bad right it's the humans behind it who actually do uh whatever but i think i love that practical piece of advice like think have the adversarial mindset think like a red teamer and um i think i think we live in just amazing times and you know really lucky to be alive in this time of the uh the human evolution and i think that definitely um the world is a lot brighter that we all need shades as i say right so um yo thank you so much thank for you. spending the time today this was fascinating uh thanks a lot appreciate it